Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our public conversations and how we can engage better with people who are different from ourselves. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with the Reverend Sally Hitchener. Sally is an Anglican priest who is chaplain at Brunel University and is shortly starting a new job as associate vicar at St. Martin in the Fields in Trafalgar Square. She set up Diverse Church, which is a network for LGBT Christians, and appears regularly in the media commenting on issues around religion. We spoke about how her faith motivates her to make a difference, her concern to help young gay Christians not give up on life or God, and the challenges associated with celebrity, including her own public profile. I really hope you enjoy listening. Sally, I am going to kick off with the big, uh, difficult question at uh, the start of the podcast, which is about your sacred values, the deep principles or kind of founding ideas that you try and live by and that feel really connected with your identity when they're pressed on or whether when they're compromised, you have a strong negative reaction to that. It's a really tricky question to answer, but having had a bit of time to reflect, what's your guess at what yours are? I think it's a couple of things. Firstly, I think I define the idea of gift as sacred. I'd say 99% of what I believe is the concept of gift and the rest is just names and locations. And I think that's important. But more than that, I think every individual is a gift from God. And I think that has really revolutionized the way I see life and the way I interact with other human beings and the way I navigate the world. And, and I work in a very multi-faith, multicultural context, and I've seen that make a difference for all sorts of different people. Talk to me a bit more about gift, because you're the first person that's named that as your sacred value. And I'm quite familiar with it as a kind of theological concept, but lots of people who listen to the podcast aren't religious or uh, familiar with those kind of concepts. So what do you mean by it? You don't just mean presence. No, no, no. Well, yes, presence too. Um, so the university where I'm chaplain, we have lots of posters around uh, and the, uh, we have a few of them that say, uh, life is a gift and the secret of life is to live generously. And that's really, I think, my motto for life. And it's because I think part, mostly influenced by my faith and, and the, the, we do a course um, looking at different faiths, so sort of five or six main world religions. And in, in each of them, I ask each of the speakers to sum up their faith in one word. So the, we have a Buddhist monk who would sum up his, who sums up his belief in the word kindness and sort of gentleness and engaging with the world in a very kind way. And what really struck me the first time we did the course a few years ago is that my belief and my perspective, at least on my faith, is summed up by the word gift, the idea that, that, that I believe in a God that's generous and I believe that the world and every human being in it is a generous gift. And, and I think we get into trouble when we forget that, when we treat people as tools or things to be used or, or um, things to achieve a goal with. And I think then we start to rank people as useful or not useful or, and we start to rank ourselves and our value based on the sort of usefulness in the world versus this idea of just being something to be delighted in. I think I've not come across a concept yet that can liberate and empower and help people to feel defined by love rather than defined by less than love than the idea of gift. Let's go back in time a bit. And I want to ask you about your childhood and particularly if there were any formative ideas, whether they're religious or political or philosophical or other that were very present in your childhood and that you feel have shaped the person that you are now. And it might be gift or it might be other things. So my parents are sort of aging hippies. They left their 
other contexts. So my father was sort of quite middle class, had an arts degree and ended up as a civil engineer. My mother um, had trained as a midwife in the same areas called the midwife. Um, she'd want me to emphasize that it was five years after Call the Midwife was filmed. Um, she's not that old, but it really formed her and it transformed her. And then she went abroad to work um, with a charity called Tear Fund, uh, working in Bangladesh, um, not long after partition, helping local midwives learn the skills that they'd learnt in London and sort of swapping ideas out there. And those two things transformed her life. And she decided when she got back to the UK that in her late 20s, that she just couldn't bear being, you know, living a standard life. She wanted to make a difference. She, she believed in her faith, was very important to her. She's a Christian. And she just thought, I can't believe people are living as if Jesus is peripheral to this, that we, we need to start living more like what she saw in the Gospels and Jesus living. So she moved to inner city Liverpool. She met my dad over the washing up. My dad had sort of moved up there partly as a way to sort of escape his parents and partly for ideological reasons. And they found love. And I am the eldest of three daughters. But we grew up in, in a rough area where my parents were very involved in the local community. My, early on, they were working and still they do work quite a lot with people with um, life debilitating drug addictions. So you never knew who you were going to find around the kitchen table when you came in. And although they had day jobs and they weren't vicars or priests or anything like that, they lived for their community and they were very purposefully involved in their, their neighbours and they ran the neighbourhood watch. And they were not, they're not the sort of people who win awards, but they gave and have and still give huge amounts of their lives. They're the type of people who have, um, you know, they'll just have an ex-offender living with them for a few weeks while he gets used to getting out in the world. And they're currently doing a huge amount of work with asylum seekers and refugees. And my mum loves a bargain and has convinced all the local supermarkets to give, a, give her all of their extra food, um, which she then goes and gives to all the asylum seekers that she knows in Liverpool. So they, they just are very practical. And I think it was really drummed into me from an early age, partly from my mum and also from my dad, actually, that, that Christianity is not real unless it, it looks like Jesus. And Jesus looks like people who, hanging out with people who are, in some sense, underprivileged or, or really need support. And it's not about giving charity or it's not a sort of benevolence. It's living among people and being confident with your own weakness and your own vulnerabilities. And, and I think that's the real framework I've been brought up with. And not in a sense of self-conscious sort of charity but just like we are all human beings and we must do what we can to live not just so we are as comfortable as possible and we can go on nice holidays and have the biggest cars but but so actually life real the real meaning of life is found in living in solidarity with with those who are excluded and did you know as a child inspired by that and that kind of the face atmosphere that you might go on to to be a vicar that that how early was that vocation and how related it is it, do you think, to those early years? You're forgetting. It was only 20 years since it had been possible for women to be priests. So um, actually it was true. totally not anywhere near my idea of what life would be like. I, I thought I probably would like to be a missionary or do something like that, maybe a social worker. I thought about lots of different things. I thought about being a doctor for a while. But I thought maybe I'd be some sort of you know, spinster missionary or something and just go through life making a difference somewhere in the world and seeing good things happen. I sound very worthy. It's not really about that. It's, it's about, I think, where you find excitement and joy. 
And um, so it's, it doesn't feel like a sort of sacrifice to have wanted to live like that. But when I was 14, they had one priest, but that wasn't really in my world because I wasn't in an Anglican church. It was a non-denominational house church. And But it was when I found faith when I was 12 for myself. My family had sort of gone to a couple of different churches and weren't going to any particular church at that point. And I had gone on a Christian summer camp and felt, um, it sounds very weird to say it out loud, but but I felt like God was speaking to me, not in a sort of audible voice, but in a sort of sense that something outside of myself made sense that I hadn't, hadn't been thinking that I would think. So they were just singing songs and hymns and things. And I suddenly felt something say to me, do you really believe this? So I sat down and thought, oh, I don't know what I believe. And so I was a very intense 12 year old, no surprise. Um, and I decided to take six months to work it out. What what do I believe? And I went to church by myself. Oh, my little sisters came along after me cram- cramping my style. And I read the gospels. And for the first time, I found the person of Christ. And I thought, this is the most incredible person I've ever come across. The The sense of generosity and the way he responded to people just struck me and it gripped me. And I decided to, after six months, I thought, yeah, I think this is true. And I want to live my life like this. And I looked at people in church and thought, yeah, they're very flawed. And yeah, they have made all sorts of mistakes and, you know, all sorts of problems. But they sort of seem to believe this and they seem to be living as if it might be true. So I'm going to try and do this. And of course, I had my ups and downs as teenagers and all the other things that happened. But that sort of was life changing. And then I went to university and and after university, I ended up working for a charity, working in boarding schools. And initially I looked at ordination with a view to becoming a school chaplain. But then through the process of discernment and training, I thought, oh, the local church is, has so much potential to not just do what my parents did as sort of individuals, but actually to be part of a community of people who are committed to their local area, whatever your local area is, and to try and be like Christ in that space and to be like Christ to each other and find the face of Christ in whoever comes through the door. And what was that like as someone, you know, reminded, I can't believe it's only 20 years, but, you know, not not that many decades after women had been able to be priests and from a, and I hate some of these labels, but from a, what others would at least perceive as a more evangelical background, how was going to theology college and getting ordained and that, that experience, how much difference and disagreement did that trigger with those that you encountered? I think that's, it was hard in some ways, but I I think my journey of finding faith, I've got this theory that the way people find faith discern, determines how they live the rest of their lives. And I think the fact that I felt I had to choose to go to church by myself, my parents weren't going at that point. And it was a very conscious thing that I had this sort of sense of revelation, I guess, of, of it being true for me. And therefore, I had to act on that. Um, that just carried me through again to looking into ordination and, and the conclusion that as I eventually came to the conclusion that it was absolutely fine for women to be in leadership and to lead churches and preach and all the other things that men could do, be bishops, be the archbishop began to be. And I think it was that I, I've I, I've just, I think at 12, I was just formed into the sort of person that, that thought, well, if God is there and then that's what matters. And so I did have a lot of challenges and problems. There were a lot, a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of people who thought I'd gone crazy one or two friends who stopped talking to me with because I was looking I was going forward to get ordained even though even getting ordained there was lots of conservatives who thought it was fine because I was only going to be working with boarding school girls and in girls schools and things and 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 then but I think it's 
no one is fully understood and I didn't really expect to be fully understood so I was sort of just grateful when a few of my friends really did and I think also people don't look at girls particularly teenagers and maybe young women in their early 20s which I was and think potential vicar and often people sort of replicate what they are and so I didn't really have really any male vicars I didn't I didn't know any female vicars and I didn't have any male vicars who said you could do this why don't you give it a go so I actually feel quite privileged in that a lot of my male friends you can tell which are their vicars who have mentored them and looked out for them because they sound exactly like them and their tones and the the things that they say are m- mimicking a lot of their mentors and and so I felt like my only call and my only mentor was Christ and and having to sort of navigate that through for myself felt quite a privilege as well as a challenge. I can really hear your your interest and in, in justice and in dignity. I know that that's one of the threads that led you to set up Diverse Church, which is this network for LGBT young people. Do you want to just say a little bit about what that is and, and how you came to do that? So Diverse Church is a series of online communities which aim to support LGBT Christians. It started off as 18 to 30 year olds, but we've now expanded um, out to support them while the church really is working out how to support them. And the original mission statement was so they don't give up on life or God. So I had so many young people come and talk to me. When I realised my own sexuality and I, I became comfortable with that, I was a university chaplain. I'd deliberately gone into university chaplaincy partly because my tradition of the church just had no space for priests to process that whilst leading a church. So I love working as a university chaplain in other contexts. So I, I, I deliberately took a job that gave me space for that. And when I became comfortable with myself, I thought, oh, the LGBT society is probably the society on campus that least is aware that they have a possibility to explore faith. So I reached out to them. I went up to them fresh as fair and I banded up and said, hello, I'm your chaplain. What can I do for you? Um, I'd love to help in any way. And they looked at me like I was mad, but they needed somewhere to have their welfare drop in. So uh, they started meeting in the chaplaincy and they were terrified of me to begin with, but eventually I won them over with biscuits and kindness and they thought I was the nicest straight person they'd ever met. And they had friends who were starting to come out because there was more discussion about LGBT on television and when their friends from school who were coming out were Christian they would often email the only LGBT person who had come out at school and say I think I might be gay or I think I might be trans and then they'd say oh you must come and talk to our chaplain so I'd have people come from all over the country to um, come and talk to me and a lot of them were suicidal a lot of them had never met anyone else who was LGBT and Christian and it was heartbreaking so I originally just decided that the biggest difference they can have is to have friends. So we created this Facebook group, which was confidential. I invited lots of friends who were LGBT and Christian to be part of it and help them to feel like this was a space that was theirs. And it grew and grew. And we decided to make a film telling some of their stories. And we decided to go public um, about five years ago. And then it exploded and we ended up with maybe 20 people a month joining. It, it suddenly grew dramatically and we ended up with hubs in most parts of the country where people would meet up for a drink in a pub once a month. And we now have five different online communities, with each with their own network of hubs and we have a group for parents of LGBT people because often it can be very difficult to navigate that as a parent. And some parents have been asked to leave churches because they have not been willing to stand against their children. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's been quite a journey. I'm not a natural activist. Friends said before 
I decided to put my name to the Divest Church thing. I asked a friend what I should do and she said, do you want to be an activist? Do you want to be famous for this? And I said, not really, but I'm not sure what other option there is. So I'm not, ironically, for when I've ended up with my life, I'm not someone who likes the limelight. I'm not somebody who naturally sort of tries to change the world. But I think it was just that we, we needed, there needed to be someone who did that. And I would push very heavily to say it wasn't just me it was a whole group of people that was I think the biggest surprise actually in Divest Church was how many resources and people who had ideas and thoughts there were and you know actually it became so much bigger than anything I could have created Um, so yeah we we grew together and we learned together what it meant to be LGBT and Christian and I think yeah I, I do think that's been we've now had 800 people in the UK go through a diverse church community and be placed in a diverse church community. And I think that's, I hope that's made quite a significant difference for them. I feel like sometimes we're running a little arc where we're sort of gathering up all the animals while the storms are happening and the possibility that they won't get blown away in the storms while the church works out what it's going to do with them and that their faith can be strong and that they can navigate. And we have, we don't have a policy on gay marriage because a lot of our people who come and join us don't know what they think. It's a space that is about promoting the Christian faith um, and about friendship. So um, as long as people want to engage with those, and if they're LGBT, they're welcome to join. You, you said it in a quite a sort of offhand way. So, you know, as I was getting comfortable with my own sexuality, yeah. um, but being kind of publicly an LGBT vicar, I imagine comes with its challenges. You're constantly talking across divides and I presume getting some level of pushback from different places. How is that experience and what have you learned from it? Oh, well, again, I sort of expected it to be much harder. So I think the difference in the UK, not just in the church, but more broadly in the last five, 10 years is just unimaginable. I don't think anyone five or 10 years ago could have imagined how included everyone is now and how part of society it feels. Um, so I was expecting to it, for it to be big. There was a, okay, this is the story of how it happened. I had set up Divest Church and I was trying to work out, do I put my name to it? And then we showed Les Miserables in the chaplaincy and it was a dark room, which I was very grateful for because I was sitting at the back in pieces really with there's a song halfway through where the main character wrestles with whether or not he should come out as his as the person who was in prison and has broken bail and he he wrestles through it because there is someone else who's in his place who's been arrested and so it's it's set in pre-revolution France and the main character is has broken his bail but then become a very respectable member of society he's the mayor of the local town and he thinks he's got away with it and he's leading a, a very comfortable life but then he hears that somebody has been arrested and they think that he is the person who's broken bail and he'll be sent back to basically a living hell in a, a very hard penal colony and he wrestles with whether or not he should let this innocent man go to hell or whether he should own up and face the consequences himself and it struck me and hit me to the core that this was my predicament as well and he wrestles through it with god it's a prayer this um this song that he sings of who am i and he he work, he goes to and fro about all the people that will be affected if he comes out and and um you know will he be okay and then but actually but god has looked after him so far and and and, and he then decides that this, the decision has already been made long a long time ago that he belongs to god and therefore he has to do the right thing and that 
really changed my life as well. And I decided whatever the consequences, I, for the sake of the fact that there were lots of other people, and at the time there were loads of gay vicars, I, it was a very sort of don't ask, don't tell culture. But lots of the young people I knew, met had no idea that you could be a vicar and be gay. And even just feeling gay without even acting on anything. And and they assumed that they were going to hell. One person, one young person described it as saying it felt as if he had cancer running through every cell in his body and he couldn't get rid of it. And I I think I just realized that I could make I could I could make a difference just by them knowing that it's okay and that I'm living it. And maybe that would inspire other people to feel that they could do that as well. So so for me it was it was a sense of I didn't really have to come out. A lot of my friends who were in the church said, don't. You can live with whoever you want to live with. You can um, do whatever you want behind closed doors, but the, let uh, let straight people fight those battles because they'll come and get you if you put your name to this and if you come out. And at the time, it was almost, it was very difficult, particularly within my end of the church. I, I can't think of a church that would have hired me as a priest if knowing that I was gay at the time within my end of the church there were other parts of the church of england that that would have been fine and there are other priests who were out for long before i was but particularly within the evangelical wing of the church it was a really big deal it was a big deal just to be a woman priest let alone to be a gay woman priest so it felt like yeah it, it was a big thing to decide but it felt like the right thing and i knew that there were maybe hundreds of people who i would feel were on my conscience if they had felt they had to give up on life or God because they didn't ha- know that you could be LGBT and Christian. And so I, yeah, I decided to put my name to it. And then um, a few months later, perhaps helpfully, perhaps unhelpfully, it accidentally ended up being said on a live television show. Um, the story behind that is I've been in a green room and the presenter said, oh, well, I, I don't really like the church because they're so bad to the LGBT community. And I said, well, I've just started a group to support LGBT people. And they're really talking to their ministers and vicars and they're finding real hope where they are. And he made the leap from that to saying live on air, Sally, you're gay. How does this affect other minorities in the church? Talking about women bishops. And my heart leapt and I just froze. But then my media training kicked in and I just sort of managed to waffle out something about, yeah, it's very important for lots of different groups and I'm sure we'd make a big difference. But then I got out the studio and the producers met me and and I had to very quickly tell my bishop and tell my uncles and aunts and all sorts of people. But it was a blessing in some senses in that it was very, it meant it, it happened very quickly, which I think was what I needed. Sally, we talked quite a bit on the podcast about talking, uh, engaging across difference and how hard it is particularly when you have a personal stake and uh, that lots of these issues that we deeply disagree on, whether that's religion or gender or race or politics, there's often this sense of, well, we just, we'll just rationally debate it out. But for lots of groups that f- very often for very good reasons feel wounded or marginalised, that can be a very difficult thing to do. And for some very good reasons, things can often, communication can break down, that that pain is too big for people to be able to communicate across it. I have watched you as someone as who is an ordained woman and a gay woman continue to have very productive, fruitful friendships, relationships with people who for both of those reasons might well really disagree with you without seemingly ever at least publicly expressing bitterness or rage or any of the things that just humanly would feel quite natural. So what why do you think you're able to do that? And are there any practices or disciplines or 
tricks that have helped you or, you know, things in your story that have given you the ability to do that and be such a kind of bridge builder? I, I definitely rage and rant and my partner hears lots of ranting. Um, I think it's partly just don't take yourself too seriously. That's I think I've just, I think one of the privileges of being not seen as a potential Archbishop of Canterbury or a potential bishop or anything else like that, um, or potential good person in the church, is that it's quite liberating. Like, it's quite liberating to be a heretic. <laughs> and I think all of us are really heretics and all of us will, you know, face God, not with everything lined up. And I think being seen as that is really the best one of the best things that's happened to my faith I could have ended up super holier than now and like quite priggish but I think it it's been a gift to be excluded um I found something in friendship with Christ in that that has meant something that I think I wouldn't have really understood the journey and the stories in the same way I don't know I think it makes you see what's important and which friends are important and which ones are not so important perhaps and things you know and makes you value people who see through all of those things and just value individuals for kindness or for other things and I found all sorts of friends and religious and non-religious who've given me strength through all of that and have just been level-headed enough to to see through all the ridiculousness of celebrity and and non-celebrity what helps me with reconciliation I think there's something about yeah, so I do think, no, don't take yourself too seriously. Have a good sense of humour. I think understanding that everyone has their own story. Um, I've been that person. I've done seminars on on the church, what, how to engage with people who think the church, Bible is homophobic and the church is homophobic from the position that, that gay marriage is wrong, like years and years ago. And, you know, I, I think we're all human. I, I think most people are on journeys of working out how to engage with other people as other, as rather than broken versions of ourselves. And I think that's been a really big journey in the church and, and perhaps wider society is understanding the LGBT community is something different. It's not a broken, straight or cis person. It's it's somebody who's got something different to give and, and a relationship which has its own beauty. And maybe that's something that even the LGBT community is, is grappling with. I think the biggest problem for LGBT people isn't the issue of gay marriage or anything else like that I think it's the issue of gay humanity and once that's understood the motto of diverse church is to be fully LGBT and fully Christian and actually being gay is like the, I think it was Sue Perkins that said it's the 20th most interesting thing about her and the most interesting thing about me is that I've been baptized and I've, my faith and the fact that I found something in that and so I, I think that that's what I have that's where my solidarity is found with my Christians who disagree with me that that we have 19 other things in common and when I'm working in a multi-faith context there's actually probably 10 or 12 or 15 of those things that are also in common and I found extraordinary generosity I work with a lot of Muslim girls in the university and I think it's been a little bit eye-opening to when eventually they find out that you know I live with a woman and and that you know our relationship is is seen as okay in the church civil partnership is okay and I think it's they've been generous and I try and give back the same generosity. So yeah, we all make mistakes. We all say stupid things. I've I've said enough stupid things. Um, so I think we have to have space for that. Talk to me about the role that you have had over 
the last few years as a kind of media vicar in shorthand, which is often preparing, uh, appearing on Sky News or elsewhere, giving a Christian perspective and sometimes presenting TV programmes and radio. What has that taught you about how the challenges and benefits of being someone in public life with a platform and uh, what have you learned from it? Yeah, I think celebrity is a really dangerous concept. I think it's destructive. It's deeply parasitical to the individual and to those who engage with the, as a concept. I've, I think I've only seen a tiny fraction of it compared to, you know, most proper celebrities, but I do get noticed on, I get people come up to me on the tube sometimes and uh, it's, it's something, and people notice what I wear, they notice all those sorts of things. And I think, I mean, it's made me think a lot about what is celebrity and what is it about? What? How do we reflect on that as people who have other frameworks? And there's something, I mean, different there's different perspectives and from an evolutionary perspective it might be seen that people have seen someone who seems to be successful and they copy everything from the you know if if they see a successful archer they might copy the incantation they do while they're retouching the arrows and believe that that somehow makes them a successful archer and the hope but then i think we've reached the stage now in our society where we have celebrity for the sake of celebrity where where you you don't even need to have a craft. You don't need to be an actor or or to have something. And and people who are extraordinarily good at their craft, whether that's politicians or or other other people, have to be good celebrities in order to function. And I think I think that's dangerous. I don't think it's necessarily bad, but I think it's risky and has huge amounts of problems associated with it. Perhaps there are enough positives that can be used that it's okay to dabble with that, but I feel like I'm playing with a gun when I'm on television. And I actually find, personally, I find success harder to deal with than failure. And being, and I, I think when I've had time, I, I did one thing with a production company where there was someone who's paid just to carry around my shoes. So whether I was wearing high heels or flats, that was their only job. They were paid, I don't know how much per hour, just to walk around behind me carrying shoes. And it's bizarre how it changes your view of being in... A human, like, I mean, I see friends of mine who are proper celebrities and they can't go to the shops. They're dehumanized in, and they're reduced in their ability in the way that I think poverty does dehumanize people and stops people from engaging with society. And so I think it's, it's a dangerous concept. I think it has a huge power for good. And I see people, I mean, for example, um, the younger royals, the um, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, and how they have very consciously engaged with their celebrity and chosen to use it for good and tr- and and chosen to have boundaries. And so I have very strong boundaries. I I, I try not to allow pictures of my home on the internet. I um, I try to have things that are sacred that are people don't get our opinion on. So. Um, on certain days we will have photographs that friends can put on the internet and certain days we don't um, because I don't want my life to be totally democratised um, because I think it will then be consumed and and people will be able to make me smaller than I am. Do you, do you mind saying a little bit more about your relationship, particularly with the press? Because knowing you a little bit, I've been quite shocked by some of the ways that we kind of build people up and then tear them down. So I'd be interested to hear that experience from your perspective. And then do you think that gender is part of it and how we perceive women in public life? Is, is there particularity around that? Yes, <laughs> in short. Um, I think, yeah, so I think the press and the 24-hour news cycle has changed how fast this sort of ravenous consuming of celebrity is. 
um, or celebrities is. And I think people are desperate to find a story and desperate to find something shocking. And stories are very simple. They, they just have different names and different locations. And so there's a story of like something that is radically a rebel that's new. There's a story of, you know, things that are naughty, things that, are, you know, various stories that just keep getting rehashed in different people in different forms. And so they're often because of the pressures and the time timing and there's no break looking for the the meme in a different body. And I I think I was I'm very keen on the idea that faith should be embodied, should be something that is about life and about flesh and blood and reality and and if faith means something, it has to mean something to every aspect of life, you know, our working lives are you know, how we interact in our private lives, all of those things have to be of meaning, otherwise faith is meaningless. And so I have taken deliberate choices to try and do it, be a young woman of faith in the media. And I felt like it was a little bit groundbreaking. There definitely have been others who've tried to do that and, and very effectively. But I think with the conversation around women bishops, the doors opened for me more than they had done for other people. And one of the things that ended up happening was I did a, an interview with the Times where they made me sound like I was going to be a saint. Um, and, the, you know, likely to be the first woman bishop, which is ridiculous because I was way too young and inexperienced, but it's very kind of them. And as uh, with that, they said, well, would, they, they did a series where they asked the people being interviewed to wear designer clothes the way that they had done with uh, lots of other groups. So they had a judge and they'd had a doctor and lots of other young women wearing designer clothes. And, they, and the idea was that you would look twice and think, oh, she's wearing a dog collar. So I did this, believing in what they were doing for their women's supplement. And uh, then it suddenly made the front page of the Times and I was wearing this beautiful Stella McCartney dress. And the uh, the consequences of that was the tabloids ended up running for me and there were some really nasty, totally made up pieces that were terrifying at the time. Um, and I'm not sure the church really knew how to support me in that and how to navigate that as well. And the idea that you could go from just being a regular person to being this commodity that could be consumed. And I remember even meeting the journalist who'd been sent to my church to harangue me and to try and find some details. And and. I, I spoke to her at the end and I said, I'm not going to tell you any details about me because I'm here as a priest and, you know, can I help you? Tell me about your spirituality. And at the end of it, she said, you're such a nice person. I'm so sorry. And and just that, that challenge that I think she felt as an individual caught up in that. And they ended the, the article that was really quite nasty ended with and made up I, I was surprised I was really shocked how much they can literally make up with no foundation at all there was no grounding to it and I thought you know everything had to be you had to give them something in order for them to make it into something but no they they like there is it's some of the, th the things that they they said were just uh, just not true there's no foundation at all there I was really shocked by that and I think also that there was something about the fear that was said when they're after you. I was told to, you know, go through your bins, make sure you haven't got anything in there that food or drink or anything they can use to illustrate the story or, you know, pack anything that, um, you know, go through, I mean, Facebook and all sorts of things that you have to go through and, and pull out things that you would never think could be misconstrued. I just find it very terrifying when you're not used to it. I'm a bit more weathered to it now and I know a little bit more about what to say and what not to say. But um, I think I'm very sympathetic to celebrities because their lives are up for grabs. And 
I've heard stories of people's mental health being totally destroyed by that. You're just commodified in a way that I think is really quite difficult. Final question, which is something I ask everyone, which is about things that you wish people would do differently. And so I'm going to ask, as someone who spends a lot of time communicating about faith in public life, are there things that you wish Christians would do more of or stop doing? And perhaps if you're willing, also we haven't asked this before, but about the LGBT community and is there, are there things that you wished they understood more or that they could do more of or stop doing to better bridge these differences? Um, so Christians engaging with the secular world, um, I, I encounter this all the time. I, I'm a university chaplain. It's literally my job to, I'm faith advisor to a large university in West London. Um, and I see Christians all the time not really listening well, and they just sort of shout louder rather than listen well. And I think the secular world is changing, or the world generally is changing so fast. And I I feel quite concerned that I don't see many people in the church that are listening well. There's, you know, the idea of changing the packaging and, you know, doing what we do or looking cooler or whatever, but I don't think that's really what connects with people. I think there's really interesting dynamics going along around um, at the moment about understandings of commitment and understandings of what you can expect from the world and and young adults I work with are they're changing their whole mindsets based on things like um, the renting culture I think is changing their their concept of com- of relational commitments and their interest in things like polyamory and all sorts of things like that I think are are being influenced by the sort of economic situation that we're facing I think there's all sorts of interesting understandings around faith that are actually the millennials I work with are fascinated by faith and they love the idea of engaging with people who have some meaning in the world and want to make a difference. And you see figures that are are suddenly coming to the fore and they're longing for people with integrity and with something that means something that isn't just compromised and, and broken down to like not make a difference to the world. So I see huge amounts of potential there and I, I'm not sure many Christians do. So I think listening can be joyful as well as being depressing. And so in terms of the LGBT community, I... I think we've got a lot to do in our, in our own heads about reframing ourselves away from being victims. I, I'm not, I don't think it's, you know, I think it's fine to acknowledge the pain and there's a lot of it. Um, but I think that we will not reach freedom for us as a society and us as a church until we all move away from this idea that there are oppressed oppressors and oppressed it's we have to be with this idea that we are all the problems are homophobia and transphobia and in the same way the problems are patriarchy it's not men so and i think we have to um navigate our own internalized homophobia and transphobia and there's a, a quote by martin luther king that comes back to me a lot where he said that we will not reach the promised land until black men hold hands with white men and walk through the gates together and that's a really hard thing to say and i've been definitely challenged on that by by me and by lots of people around me but I do think we have to reach a point where we are willing to forgive and we're willing to hold hands and and to engage with the human being even the human being who's been deeply oppressive I I, I used to run or co-run Christians at Pride which is running predominantly the Christian groups marching in London Pride and Pride in London I think is the phrase and we at one point, we we created space for um, for supporters who are not LGBT to stand on the side and cheer on, and we had a special venue and, and engagement for that. And I had so much flack from people saying, "Well, what if my vicar from twenty years ago who kicked me out of the church wants to do that? Like, like how? What if he wants to do that? You can't let him." 
And but if over those 20 years he's got to the stage where he wants to cheer along the LGBT community, then, you know, we have to have space for that. We have to create opportunities. And so I think it's important that we all are looking at each other's humanity and are given space and ability to acknowledge really what's happened and not to do it too fast and leap to forgiveness before we've really acknowledged what was there, but to find a way to navigate that in a way that's meaningful. Sally, thank you so much for talking to me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the Think Tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.